All right. So, continuing on our road to the end of Revelation, we are now um, going to Pergamon. But first, we're going to sort of recap where we were last week, uh, which was Smyrna. So, the, the big idea of the text from last week was simply that you know, Jesus is speaking to this particular church, and he's speaking as an encourager. He wants to really encourage them, and he wants to remind them as well that they, have, they, they need to endure suffering faithfully because he can bring life out of even death or out of suffering and persecution as well. And we looked at a couple of different insights. Uh, the first one was essentially that material wealth is secondary to relational and spiritual wealth. And this is why we stress our life groups so much. That's where you build and gain relational wealth. Um, I will, won't really contradict what Andre said. If you're praying about it, what you should be praying about is not whether to be in one, maybe which one, but there's no need to pray about whether you should be in one or not. That's pretty, you know, we can make a pretty strong scriptural case for the need to be in one. So that was kind of point number one. Number two was just simply, if you are going to be a Jesus follower, you're going to be persecuted in some way, shape, or form. Okay, perhaps not to death, <laughs> hopefully not to death, but persecution is going to be a part of the journey. Uh, but on the flip side, if that does happen, then Jesus is our comforter. So we have that wonderful fallback. And then finally, um, the great hope, resurrection is our great hope in this Christian life. It's not an easy life in the present. That's not at all what scripture says, right? So we've got to really keep that in mind when we go through tough times that you know, Jesus is not there to make sure your life is trouble-free. Jesus came to make sure that your eternity was trouble-free, which I think is a little better deal. Okay, so now let's really talk about uh, the verses for this week. which is Pergamum, although it's referred to as Pergamus here. Um, about 70 miles north of Smyrna. So as you can see, it's the, I guess, the northernmost of the seven churches. So we've gone up north. Now we're, next week we'll start to, well, when we continue this, we'll start to come back down south. Um, the upper city rested on this massive granite hill. It was over a thousand feet above the surrounding plains. And this is a picture of their amphitheater that they built. And um, it is said that um, the acoustics were so good that if you whispered on stage, which is at the very bottom there, you could hear it in the top row. Which I thought was, was pretty amazing when you think about you know, technology today and so forth. Um, Pergamum boasted these magnificent temples, uh, not only to Rome, but also to the actual emperors themselves. And um, in fact, it was the very first city that was actually granted permission by Rome 
to build a temple to a living emperor. So they were the first to do that. And that was in 29 BC, and it was the Emperor Augustus. Uh, the city served as an intellectual and religious hub. Um, but the key thing to remember here, really, for this entire passage, is that it was the leading center of the imperial cult in all of Asia. All right, so they were the ones, as you can kind of see that, because if they were that early, you know, sort of getting into this idea of emperor worship, it would sort of naturally increase. And so that's why this city sort of became the hub of all this. So we've talked about it in some of the other cities, but here was really where it started. Here's where it's centered. This was the place. Um, and so, quite naturally, Pergamum is the most likely of the seven cities where Christians are going to be persecuted because it's so strong there. Um, now, it also had um, a massive altar that was uh, with all these serpent carvings that was an altar to Zeus, uh, as well as a huge temple ded dedicated to Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god of healing, and it was symbolized by a snake. And so if you've ever wondered why on certain medical symbols you see a snake, it goes all the way back. This is the rod and uh, snake of Asclepius. So it goes all the way back into you know, this particular time period. Now in some, you'll see something a little different. You'll see two snakes, um, which is it's representative of the god Hermes. Um, and what I found was that professional organizations tend to use this one. Commercial endeavors tend to use the other one. Why that is, I don't know. But anyway, that's, I thought that was just kind of interesting, that that goes all the way back into, uh, into mythology. Um, Asclepius actually was supposed to be a healer of some kind, but then they deified him, I guess, after his death, and he became a god. All right, so now let's get into the actual text. So this is Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. All right. So let's dig in to this one a little bit. 
So first of all, we have in verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, typically, as you would, would guess, the sword symbolizes warfare or judgment, really when it would be used. And this sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth. And so that's an in indication of the power uh, of his words to be able to execute judgment upon his enemies. Now what's sort of interesting is that the Roman government actually was the one that believed that it had the right to capital punishment, to execute capital punishment. And there's a Latin phrase for it that I can't pronounce, but it means the right of the sword. So they held to that belief that they had the right of the sword, which allowed them to actually put to death people that they chose to. But then the message of Christianity is that all power and all authority outside of God is derivative. And what I mean by that is that everything is derived from God. Rulers and authorities are created beings by God. And they receive their power from God. And so it is Jesus and Jesus alone who wields all power in heaven and on earth. And the ultimate power of the sword belongs to him. He is the one who has laid down the law to all the nations. And if the rulers don't comply or choose not to enforce his commands, then he's going to bring his sharp sword down upon their necks. Next, we have verse 13, where it says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, Jesus, what he's saying here clearly is that he understands what the difficulties are that they're going through because, you know, he's essentially saying that they're living where Satan has his throne. Now, a lot of different interpretations of what this could possibly mean. Um, we talked a minute ago about the fact that Pergamum sits up on this really high hill that just went way up from the plain. And there are those that if you were able to look at it from the plain, say that the shape of the, the hill looks a little bit like a throne. And so that is one interpretation of why this is called a throne. There was also a great throne-like altar that was in the temple of Zeus, another possible interpretation. Another one being the temple in the cult of Asclepius might have been the reason that he said this. And then finally, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this was the official cult center of worship of the emperor. And that's the one that really seems most likely. Um, because we see that you know, Rome is portrayed throughout the Revelation, and in particular, in these letters as the primary human enemy of God's people. And Pergamum is the center of all this, uh, the center for this cult in all of Asia Minor. And so it really stands to reason that that's what this is referencing, is the fact that this throne of Satan refers to the fact that this is the central place where all of that originates. And Satan has already been identified 
uh, in these messages as well as being united with the synagogue, right? I think it was last week where he talked about a synagogue of Satan, okay? So he's tying those two together. <clears throat> and so, um, and that refers to the fact that there's this unbelieving Jewish community that's kind of abandoned Judaism and has gone over to all these other weird um, religions and cults and practices and so forth. And so really the, the foremost enemy of the church throughout the whole New Testament is apostate Jews. You know, they're the ones that are constantly hauling the Christians before the Roman authorities, right? And so it's this combination, uh, this relationship that exists between, you know, the cult of the emperor worship and then these Jews that were sort of in cahoots with them. Um, and then on top of that, if you take the fact that Christianity was opposed to all that, right? They were opposed to this idea of statism. They were certainly opposed to the idea of worshiping a created being such as the emperor. Um, and so all of those things sort of taken together would certainly indicate that, um, persecution and probably martyrdom is going to be a prominent part of this city and what goes on there. So that there we have the throne of Satan. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. And so even though this church was being persecuted by the Roman authorities, they continued to confess Jesus. They continued to really stand in that sense. And so, you know, they were, what they were essentially saying is, it's Jesus that's the link between heaven and earth, not one of the Caesars. And so we have now this man named Antipas. And probably because he refused, he may have even been, a, you know, we don't know, he might have been a leading um, member of the church. It's possible. Um, but for whatever reason, they executed him. They put him to death for his faith. Um, now, what's interesting is he's the only martyr that's named in the entire book of Revelation. So he's the only one that we know about by name. Um, And the really cool thing is that because he has been so faithful to the character and the person of Jesus, that Jesus identifies him as faithful witness, which is the same title that Jesus used for himself back in the first chapter. And then it gets really fascinating when you understand what the name Antipas means. Antipas means against all. And so not only by his actions, but simply by his very name, Antipas personifies the steadfastness of the Pergamon church in sort of uh, resisting this persecution that was coming at them. But they weren't perfect. And so kind of a compilation of verses 14 and 15 say that some among you were hold, holding to the teaching of Balaam, likewise to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. <clears throat> and there was one threat that probably posed 
uh, a danger to the integrity of the faith that was even greater than persecution. Because typically through history, persecution is what grows the church, right? Persecuted people have nothing else. And so they cling to their faith and they, they, they rely on that. But something that's an even greater danger is the insidious working of heresy. And so you have this church that's standing so steadfastly for the faith when it comes to outright persecution, yet they fall prey to these other forms of compromise. And so to really get the most out of this, we're going to have to take a little bit of a trip back to the Old Testament um, to really understand what, he, what Jesus is saying here. If you go back into the book of Numbers, it's primarily chapters 22 through 24, but even beyond 24, you will find an exchange between uh, Balak, who is the evil king of Moab, and a false prophet named Balaam. And so Balak wanted to, he was threatened by the nation of Israel, so he wanted to destroy them and eventually discovered that he was not going to be able to do that through warfare. There were, there were just too many of them. So Balaam suggests another way to defeat Israel. He says the only way to defeat Israel was through corruption. And so soon thereafter, the men of Israel began to indulge in sexual immorality with the women of Moab. Uh, and these women brought men to their idolatrous sacrifices uh, to a fertility god, and pretty soon Israel was bowing before him, even consuming food that was sacrificed to this god. And so, like Balaam in the Old Testament, the false apostles at Pergamum attempted to destroy the Christians by corrupting them, by enticing them to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. And these were very common practices in the pagan world at this time. Uh, and if you really you look at it closely, the language that John's using here um, to write this up, seems like he drew it directly from the book of Acts, where you have the Jerusalem Council's words as far as what Gentiles needed to do. And that's in Acts 15, 28 through 29. And it simply says, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. So that's what the, they had agreed to, because if you have read Acts, you'll remember there was this big disagreement amongst um, the members of the early church, about, primarily about circumcision. Do, do Christians need to be circumcised? Do they need to obey Jewish law? This council got together and said, if you just will do these four things, you'll be fine. You don't have to worry about the rest of it. And so what these false apostles in Pergamum were teaching is a, it's a principle called antinomianism. Now, I know that's a mouthful, even for me. But really all it's saying is, that the Christians were free from the law, completely, totally free from the law, to the extent that 
it was no longer a sin in their account to commit idolatry, to commit fornication. They only, all they had to do was to live as you please. There was no you know, idea or no grasping of this biblical concept of sanctification, <laughs> you know, that we're supposed to, we're free from the law, but only as we continue to pursue God. And so Jesus quite properly rebukes this church for tolerating these practices and saying that this was okay because it's not. And so he tells them to repent or he's going to come and fight against them. And so we have a little bit of a contrast here because we, if we remember the church in Ephesus, they dealt with this properly. Right? They kicked people out of the church. However, they didn't do it with a lot of love. And that's what they were lacking, and that's what Jesus told them about. And so the church in Pergamum needs to be as firm and as decisive as the church in Ephesus was in dealing with this kind of false teaching. And so, you know, this sword image emphasizes this coming judgment of Christ. if the church continues to sort of advocate this assimilation of these cultures, right? And, you know, sort of once again, if we're sort of contrasting and comparing the Old Testament with what we're seeing here, if you know the story of Balaam, you know that when the angel of the Lord appeared to him, he had a sword. And that, that it was a sword that was eventually used to kill Balaam. And so... The church needs to remember that whenever it indulges heretics, uh, whether the people are indulging them or whether it's the leadership, then the church is always on the verge of uh, being destroyed by the wrath, of the jealous wrath of God. You know, now destroyed doesn't necessarily mean wiped out, but a lot of churches have come and gone. <clears throat> So now we come to the last verse. And in this verse, the overcomers are, are really promised two rewards, hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. Now I think hidden manna represents God's supernatural and eternal provision that sort of stands in contrast to the food that was offered to idols you know, that we just sort of talked about in these pagan feasts. Now here's a question. Do you know where the hidden manna was kept? Yes, very good. It was in the Ark of the Covenant, and it was representative of Christ. And if you remember, they were told to put, collect some of the manna and put it in the Ark, and that's where it stayed. <clears throat> and so this really sort of implies uh, participation in a messianic banquet where you have this heavenly food that um, and feast focused on the worship of God. Saw a story about a mother who was trying to feed her two-month-old daughter. And the daughter cried loudly and frantically, as young children are apt to do, struggling, pausing just long enough to breathe, and then, you know, whipping their head back and forth. And the mother is thinking, 
if she would only be still, then I could feed her. And as she looked down at this baby in her arms, the mother wondered about how often that she cried out to God, hungry for spiritual food, but was too frantic and too agitated to allow God to feed her. God wants to feed us. The question is, will we stay still long enough to eat? Now, as it regards the white stone, um, once again, there are various opinions on what exactly this means. Uh, some believe it's a ticket of admission to the Messianic banquet. Uh, it's a positive vote of acquittal, you know, by God. If you are, um, I think there was a practice back in Rome of where they would use black and white stones to determine guilt or innocence. And the white stone was the one that um, would be, uh, you would be judged innocent if you got a white stone. So you have some of these, um, some of these uh, opinions. Oops. Um, but I think which it probably um, I've completely lost my train of thought. All right, we're going to have to move past that. Um, but I think more important than the stone is what's written on it, right? We have this expression known only to the one who, who receives it. And it's actually rooted in a Hebrew idiom that means that the name is known by the receiver in the sense of owning it, okay? So in other words, the point is not that the new name is secret, but that is exclusive. Only the overcomer possesses the name. It's the divinely ordained definition of that person as belonging to the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else has the right to it but that person. All right, so let's see how we can apply some of this. The first point is that we're called to persevere as faithful witnesses, even in the most difficult of circumstances. You know, we learn from this whole text here about the church in Pergamum that it was a pretty difficult place to be a Christian. You had all these competing things going on. You had the power of the city as an intellectual center. You had the healing cult of Asclepius. You had the altar of Zeus. And then kind of above all of that, you had this city as the center of emperor worship. And so all of that is bound to just greatly increase the pressure that was on the Christians there. Especially the pressure to conform, to be like, you know, one of these things. And so I think this identification of the, the imperial cult with Satan's throne really helps us kind of do away with that caricature that so many of us have of Satan, you know, with the, the, the red horns and the, the tail and all that sort of thing. 
and really come to a more biblical understanding of who this diabolical figure is, including the fact that his influence is more deeply felt in some places than in others. In both the first century world and still today, some places are spiritually darker than others. Some are more open to Satan's influence, and some are more opposed to the gospel than others. And so people that are actually living where Satan has his throne, figuratively speaking, need a lot of support, especially in prayer, if they're going to be able to endure faithfully. Pastor uh, Richard and Sabina Wormbrand were the founders of Voice of the Martyrs, and they were no strangers to persecution. They were Romanian ministers, and they watched as that country fell under the control of communism, an ideological and political movement that demanded ultimate loyalty. In a particular gathering, many religious leaders came forward over an open mic broadcast to the nation to praise communism and to swear loyalty to the new regime. Sabina looked at Richard and said, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. Richard said to her, if I do so, you'll lose your husband. I don't wish to have a coward as a husband, she replied. So at a public gathering of religious leaders that was organized by the communists, Richard declared to the 4,000 delegates whose speeches were broadcast to the whole nation that their duty is to glorify God and Christ alone. As a result, Richard suffered years of brutal imprisonment and torture. And I have a little snippet of video from him. I knew that even in the van of the secret police, I am in the hands of the almighty God. And this gave quite to my heart. I was led to a prison which is 30 feet beneath the earth and for years I was kept there in solitary confinement. Don't think that I speak about my sufferings. I speak to you about the suffering of my whole country and of the church behind the Iron Curtain, which has given in these years innumerable martyrs, heroes, and saints. I have been among the little and the weak ones in prison. I speak about these great heroes of faith. In my case, you can see what happened to them. For years we were kept, everyone alone in a cell. Never have we seen sun, moon, stars, snow. Never have we seen a man except the interrogators who beat and tortured. Air entered through a tube. Never have we had a book, never a bit of paper. When after many years I had to write again, I did not remember how to write a capital D. We lay on a few desks 
We looked to the ceiling, that was all. Never could we hear in this prison even the slightest noise. The guards had closed shoes and there was a silence which you could cut with a knife. And now in this absolute solitude we could experience if Christianity is true or not. I am a man, a pastor apart, who doesn't know the Bible. I have not read it 14 years and I have forgotten it. I have forgotten my theology, but I have touched spiritual realities. We have touched the world of angels and with great humility we can reproduce the words of the apostles in the first epistle of St. John. What we have seen with our eyes, what we have heard with our ears, what we have touched with our own fingers, this we tell to you. The first time when we were put in solitary confinement was like dying. Once the angels of death will take you too, and you will remain alone with the remembrance of your past life. It has been a horrible time. Every one of us lived again his past sins and his neglects of duties. We remembered everything which we have done wrong. We were now under the eyes of God and we remembered as often as we have said some bad wo word to somebody. We have made some bad deed. We were in prison with one of the greatest soul winners of Romania, something like a Billy Graham of ours. And he told us afterwards that in these years of solitary confinement, he had horrible remorses for the following thing. He had once preached in a great meeting, 400 souls surrendered to Christ. And when he left the meeting, a young man ran after him and said, Pastor, I would like to speak to you. And the pastor turned back and said, I am very exhausted now. I can't. Come sometime. Come another time. And so this young man went away and he never saw him again. Then the communists came to power. On a Sunday this pastor has preached thrice. He was very tired. In the night the secret police came, took him and submitted him to, an, to a non-stop interrogatory of five days and five nights. And now he could, out of fear, of the communists out of fear of tortures he could what he could not out of love to Christ and he said to us that I wept during many days asking myself how I will appear before God having brought to Christ only 400 when it could have been 401 so we all had an unimaginable pain in our hearts thinking that we have not done our utmost for the highest, for the one who has given his life for us on the cross. So, the next time God nudges you to pray for a stranger, or to perhaps give them an encouraging word, and you don't, because it might be embarrassing. 
Perhaps you'll recall the anguish of the Romanian Billy Graham over the one that he turned away. Christians are often tempted to compromise with the world in the areas of idolatry and immorality. See, the, these specific areas of failing are specifically identified in this letter. And so it kind of allows us to contextualize that a bit more into our own setting. And, you know, we may not struggle with eating food offered to idols. I doubt any of us does. But there certainly are things that we do struggle with that are just as idolatrous as uh, joining in a guild festival where the emperor is worshipped. You know, is it, is it material possessions that is your idol? Is it the worship of celebrity? You know, we don't like to talk about this a whole lot, but there's a celebrity cult that is probably just as strong as the emperor cult was. Is it sexuality in some way? Is it just your worldview? See, there's a fine line between encouraging interaction with the culture in order to serve and to love and to witness and compromising with the culture. And the freedom to interact that we have with the culture should not turn into a license to participate in a sinful lifestyle. See, as people who live in a particular time and in a particular place, we have to be aware of ways in which we might operate with a pretty significant blind spot. And that's because it's so easy for us to take for granted the norms of our land, the norms of our culture that are going on all around us. I had not ever read this before, uh, and it was pretty shocking. But uh, near the end of his life, Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a violent tract called on the Jews and their lies, denouncing the Jews. See, as believers, we can never underestimate just how much the power of the world has to bind us. And finally, Jesus future promise of acceptance, fellowship, and identity can help us endure now. See, while all these promises that are made to the overcomers in these letters to the seven churches are primarily end times related, the hope generated by those promises can have a life-changing impact in the present. See, people have always pursued the very things that Jesus promises, acceptance, community, personal significance. 
And so what is promised at this messianic banquet in the new heaven and the new earth can begin now with the family of God as we are people who can experience these very realities. It's the church that can be the place where the end time promises can begin to be fulfilled. <coughs> In fact, Jesus gave his church a very tangible reminder of his promise to make us his own. And that's the Lord's Supper. And so in this great celebration, God's people remember what Jesus has done for us, what he is doing for us, and what he is doing in us, as we know that one day we will meet him face to face. <clears throat> the Reformed Church in America includes the following line in their communion liturgy, which I thought was very appropriate to this whole point. And it says, we come in hope, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge and foretaste of the feast of love of which we shall partake when his kingdom has fully come, when with unveiled face we shall behold him made like unto him in his glory. And so then the big idea of this whole passage is one in which Jesus is commending this church for being faithful, for sort of persevering through this uh, persecution that they're, they're under, this, this whole environment of persecution that they're living in. But then he warns them, you can't get caught up in the culture. And that is such a message to us today. You know, it is so easy to slip into that. Um, It's so attractive. And there's all these other people that are doing it. And so, you know, it's just, and so many times I think as Christians, we will walk right up to the line. Or maybe I should say we walk right up to the edge of the cliff, right? We get our toes so that they're right there. with something that you know, we know we really shouldn't be involved with. And so we'll get as close as we can possibly get without stepping over the line or stepping off the cliff. And think maybe, well, I'm not really doing that. I haven't taken that step yet. But you know, if you're going to get that close to it, it's like Jesus said, if you've committed adultery with someone in your heart, it's the same thing. And so if you're going to stand right up at the edge of whatever it is, aren't you really doing the same, that very thing? You feel like though, well, I'm not really... I haven't taken that step. Well, no. If we're going to really follow Jesus, then we have to understand that if there's more to it than just taking that step. It's the whole, that whole process of walking up to that line and standing there that should be off limits to us.
we're going to uh, have our time of communion now. And I was, uh, was very encouraged by what um, Mary said earlier about that, you know, the freedom. And, and that is so true. And I think if we really can grab a hold of the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit really indwell us and really take over in us, it becomes so much easier to say no to those other things that just look good, but we know really aren't. I don't know why this image is coming to my mind, but it's sort of, you know, the, the whole thing with the attraction of the culture. It's like when you see um, a picture of a celebrity in sort of a, you know, without the makeup and all that, and then you see them with it, and, and the difference is so dramatic, you know, when they're just sort of slumming around, and they kind of look just like the rest of us. <laughs> So, as we take communion, I just really want to pray that, that we will be uh, just very, very open to whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do today. 